Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13, 21 to 23. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, They are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat if Some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on top of and both sides of the doorframe. Now, none of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning. When the Lord goes to the land, strike down the Egyptians. He will see the blood on the top of the sides of the doorframe and will pass over the doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. This is the word of our God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Emerald. Good morning, and welcome again to Redeemer at Lincoln Square. The concept of freedom might be the single greatest value that our culture has right now. It is the thing that many people dream of. It is the thing that many people see as the meaning of life, to be free. Free to define ourselves the way we want. Free to 
uh, pursue the desires that we have. Freedom, it fuels our cultural imagination. It's inside our books. It's inside our stories. It's inside our advertisements. It's in our movies. It's in our songs. One of my favorite songs um, from the iconic band Fish is the, is the song Character Zero from the 90s. This, this is uh, some of the lyrics. I was taught a month ago to bide my time and take it slow. Then I learned just yesterday to rush and never waste a day. Well, I'm convinced the whole day long that all I learn is always wrong. And what I like about that is, is the writer is saying, hey, there's this freedom that, to buy, that people say, bide your time and take it slow. But there's another freedom to, to uh, rush and never waste a day. And those two freedoms contradict each other. And so I guess he's like, I guess I'm always wrong because, you know, I don't know what to, what to hold on to. And that's where we're at right now. We love the idea of freedom, but everybody has a different version. What freedom will really work? What is going to bring real freedom? And so what we've done is we've been going through a series here at Redeemer Lincoln Square, looking at the original, always was the original story of freedom, which is the book of Exodus. And so what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to go through this book of Exodus to find freedom. And today we get to the apex. We get to the climax of the story where we find the basis of freedom, the center of freedom that, that is the center for all of Christianity. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at three things. Let's look at what won't work for freedom, what we need to get freedom, and how freedom always needs substitution. I'll say that again. What won't work for freedom, what do we actually need for freedom, and then how freedom always necessitates substitution. So first, okay, what won't work for freedom? The context for our text, this is the 10th plague. There's been nine other ones ahead of it. And again, we said this before, but I'll say it again. The plagues are not just random miracles. They actually don't work very well for miracles. I could find more miraculous things than just some gnats and some flies and some, some locusts. The reason why these particular plagues have been used is because Pharaoh, earlier on in the book of, of Exodus, said, Who is this God? And God has now been trying to show him the very nature of who he is in comparison to the other gods. And he has been trying to show the differentiation. He's been trying to go after what the, these other gods are about. And each plague is trying to do that. Verse 12 is helpful for us here. If you look at verse 12, it says that he is trying to go, on, he's trying to go after all the gods of Egypt. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And so each one of these plagues does that, right? The, the plague against light was against the god Ra. Pharaoh supposedly was kind, uh, the son of Ra, or a descendant from Ra, and so there's darkness. There was the Nile god, and what you do with the Nile is, the whole Nile was turned to blood to challenge that god. And so God is trying to come through and trying to show us and these people what won't work for freedom. And that begs the question here, now we're at the tenth plague, what god is he going after here? Again, go to verse 12, and it says that this is about the firstborn, the God of the firstborn. You say, well, what's that about? Well, this is where we have a little bit of a trouble because modern people, there's a disconnect because we don't quite know the primacy of what the firstborn meant for the ancient Near East. Yes, I do know that there's traditional cultures today where the firstborn is still prized and the firstborn is still valued and the most important child and whatnot, but 
that, that pales in comparison to the ancient Near East, where the firstborn was the center for the whole culture, that everything went through the firstborn. It was the future hope and the current hope of the family in the firstborn. The entire economic system went through the firstborn. The entire legal system, all legal rights, happened through the firstborn. Wealth passed down. The, the most wealth came to the firstborn. And so that means is the way of freedom in this culture primarily was economically, relationally, culturally, legally, through the firstborn. So today, we, we kind of look at things like, like with an individual lens. We say, what's individual success going to be? What's individual uh, attainment going to be? But people back then didn't think that way. They thought, what's family success? What is going to bring freedom for the family? And what God is trying to then do here is he's showing up and saying, hey, you, I know you think freedom will come through the eldest, through the, the firstborn, but it won't. You think it's going to lead to life. It's going to lead to death. And so culturally... God is trying to show them that this, is, this won't bring freedom. And if you think about it, why? Because think of all the family division that happens because of the primacy of the firstborn. Think of all the, the jealousy and the rage and neglect. Sociologically, uh, psychologically, this is founded. And so zoom out for a second. I know our gods are not river gods or probably not firstborn gods, but if God is saying, hey, you you want to know what it's, going to be, what it's going to take to be free. I'm going to show you what that is. What are the firstborn, so to speak, in our lives? What are they? We have to do this, by the way, every single day. We have to keep asking this question. You might have asked this question before, but you have to ask yourself over and over again, is that firstborn my bank account? Is it my comfort? Is it my reputation? Is it my people, the fact that people think well of me? For more and more people, is it your political ideology? Is it the, the framework that you read everybody through? Is that the thing that, that, that sort of you get your mind around and becomes the driving force and the engine for what you think will actually make you free? I find it very interesting that God is systematically going through each one of these plagues, kind of cutting down all the local gods that people might have used to try to feel like they get their freedom and identity. And it isn't until this last one that Pharaoh finally listens. One of my favorite movies is the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it's a movie about a prison in Maine and the lives of those who were sent there. And there's a scene where the eldest inmate, Brooks, is, is released. He'd been in prison for decades and decades, and he's released. But as he's released, he's at, even though he's externally free, he's not free. He can't get used to it. He doesn't like it. Because you can be externally free on the outside, but you're not actually internally free. In the same way, I think this is why you can intellectually understand and get the idea that you're, you're, you can say, okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, you can do all the things, you can come to church on Sunday externally. But in, internally, you still have a God of anger in your life. The Lord of your life is still success. The Lord of your life is still your family. The Lord of your life is still your friendships. The Lord of your life is still, again, your reputation and how well people think of you and, 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 and how they like you or don't like you. That, that can still functionally be your God and enslaving you. See, I really think that we could be thinking right now, we could be saying, okay, what's lunch going to be like? What's my future? What's, what's the rest of the day going to be like? You might be sitting here right now saying to yourself, I don't know why God has been delaying and giving me the, where I know I need to go when really maybe he's delaying not because 
He's just this sort of capricious God. No, maybe it's possible that the reason why he's delaying, what you think is, del- is delay, he's just trying to show you what's re- what you're really enslaved to, what you're really bound to. See, the Israelites very soon are going to be externally free, and you and I, we're actually, this whole culture, the reason why we love this term is that we're externally free. You can, you're free to change your body any way you want. You're free to, to love anybody that you want. You're free to, to be in relationship with anybody you want externally. But none of that will matter if internally you're still enslaved. And so we have to ask this question over and over. What won't bring freedom? The worry is, is actually the things that you're probably most enslaved to are the ones that you don't recognize. The best slave systems out there hide from those who are enslaved that, what they are. And I'm, by the way, I'm not, talking just gov- I'm not talking governmental or even technology. I'm talking internally. The, the thing that uh, is best able to hide from itself, what it really loves, what's really in- enslaved, is your heart. My heart has this ridiculous ability to take people, places, and things and use them. We think we're free through them, but really we've been enslaved and shackled by them. And so before we move on, we have to see that real freedom takes time. It takes time to move from the head to the heart. It takes, uh, there's a progression. Pharaoh has needed time to see this. And he needed plagues. He needed hardships to see this. And that's the case for him, and it's the case for us. We have to do this work, and we have to do it weekly to find out what won't bring freedom. Number one. Okay, fine. Number one. Number two. Then what will bring freedom? What do we need for freedom? And before we get there, I ha- we have to take a pause. There's a side point, because if you read this text in its entirety, modern people always do this. We look at this, and this is what I, I circled. I started circling over there uh, the word slaughter, the word blood, the word, you know, you must, you must do. There's all this ritual and, and law, and modern people go, what the heck? Why does God always want blood? Why does he always want slaughter? Why does he want, like, sacrifice? See, there's a lot of us, we sit, we sit around and we go, I just want a God of love and peace and happiness. Why? I don't understand why the Bible is so full of all this stuff that makes God look bloodthirsty. It makes God look uh, cheap and, and petty. And I, I, I hear that a lot. I've heard it through when I worked with college students. I've, now I work with, with New Yorkers. And I, I hate to say this, but I think we, everybody suffers. But when you say statements like this, it shows that you haven't deeply suffered. Because when you live through a war-torn place, when you've really suffered, when you've really been the object of injustice, you know life is bloody. You know life is hard. You know that when you've been wronged, when you've lived through hardship, it's bloody. It's, it's, there's suffering. There, there, there is these things. Now, I know um, lamb's blood does not actually make adequate p- payment. I think everybody knows that. Pre-modern people knew that a real human life was not equal to an anim- animal life. And so that we have to ask the question, then what's the point? Later on in Exodus, there's a whole sacrificial system that is based off of this that gets started. And so through the tabernacle and eventually the temple, hundreds of thousands of animals are killed. And a lot of us, modern people go, that, what a waste. Just burnt up. What a waste. Or there's another possibility. Maybe, just maybe, we're grossly underestimating the real problem in your life. Maybe we're grossly underestimating 
how big and costly our issues really are. Because the sacrificial system was one giant sign saying this, danger, costliness, payment, bad. And it was screaming it in, the, in, in their face, and it's doing it for us. I think, let me try it in a different way. I think our culture is starting to wake up to this. We're starting to realize how costly injustice is and how much it's going to take to rectify it. We're constantly talking about what does it look like for payment? What does it look like to fix this thing? I think even cancel culture is a process that our culture has tried to develop to, to make people pay. It's a sacrificial system. It's a way to, it's an object lesson that there's something that has to happen here to fix the, the wrongs of the world. Because I would argue change never happens without a bloody cost. Change does not happen without some sort of exchange, some sort of cost of wrongdoing. So when you hear people saying, ew, blood, I don't like it, I don't like what's going on here, what, you're, what they're really saying there is they haven't been able to see the costliness of the wrongdoing. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. The depth of it, the, the, the real hurt that's really there. But I think, I think but let, me, let me put it this way. New Yorkers get this. When New Yorkers say, nothing's for free, you ever heard that phrase, nothing's for free? That's the same thing. We know there's a costliness here. People, some people push back and say, oh, well, you know, the Internet's free, right? You know, there's free stuff on the Internet all the time. There's, there's uh, email clients and there's search engines. But I had a tech person tell me recently, if it's free on the Internet, it means you're the product. If it's free on the Internet, then it means that uh, you're the one who is, is paying either through your data or, look, you know, your eyeballs looking at advertisements. There's always a cost. You say, oh, well, you know, it's okay. When people hurt me, I just forgive them, right? It's free. no. Forgiveness, real forgiveness, is costly. Because what's happening is, is there's a, a, a wrong that's been done. They owe you, and if you really forgive, really forgive, you stop asking for payment back. I think we get this. The world gets the, that, that the nothing is for free. But that's what's really happening in all, all the uh, uh, sacrificial system of the blood. So that's what's going on here. Now back to our story. If, if this is the apex, why? Up until this moment, in this text. This is, this is um, Exodus 12. God had been going after Egypt, had been going after Pharaoh, going after their idols, after their gods. And so you see all this stuff about laws and ritual and blood and sacrifice. And you say, okay, that's, that's different than what's been asked before. This is, this is new. And yet there's a clue buried in here. And the clue is this. Is look in verse 22. It says that, that the Israelites can't even go outside. This isn't painting your, your door frames for fun of it. No, there's a danger now. And everybody would, would have been like, wait a second. It's, it should be Egypt and, and Pharaoh that should be in danger. They're the ones who should be afraid about going outside. But no, the, the Israelites are warned. No, there's something dangerous for you. And I think what, what's happening here is they're finally seeing, whereas the Israelites before had been protected from the previous plagues, because why? Their gods, they did not have the gods of the Nile. They didn't have the gods of the light. That wasn't their problem. But all of a sudden, 
you have to start asking, wait a second, did the, did the Israelites idolize the firstborn? They did. Just go to Genesis, right? In Genesis, what do you have there? You see Isaac favoring Esau over Jacob. And then Jacob turned around, if you go to Genesis 49, the blessing he gives to Reuben is purely because he's the firstborn. And over and over and over again, that was their practice. That's what they did. And so what's happening here is the victims that had been oppressed all along, turns out, they were oppressed. It was wrong for what happened to them. But all of a sudden, they, they're being shown they're the wrongdoers. And the rest of the book of Exodus shows through their rebelliousness, through their stubbornness, through their waywardness, that actually they were wrong too. That they were exposed too. And this is, this is a super important point. This is the basis of the Bible that this, nobody does this. This is actually really, this is a new movement in the history of humanity. Because here's, here's the thing. Everybody understands this. The believers, they believe and they're in. And the bad believers, they're out. Right? Good people in, bad people out. And all of a sudden what you see here is actually you're all out. Paul codifies this in, in Romans through the, when he actually writes out the theology of this. He says, look at Romans 1. He goes, all the non-believers, they've exchanged, they should be loving and worshiping God, but they've exchanged God for other things, created things, idols and stuff. And so you would think, oh, this is where all the, all the religions, even our secular culture then says, yeah, they're the bad people, the, the good people are the ones who do it right. But Paul shows up in Romans 2, what does he say? Hey, the people who follow the law, the, the ones who are, who are good, guess what? Your goodness is not good enough. And then he sums, summarizes it in Romans 3, and he says this, the big important word, therefore, therefore, there is no one righteous, not one. All have, you know, fall short of the glory of God. No one seeks. What's happening in that moment is that it's, it, it, that moment started here, where in our text, for the rest of the, of the, of the, of the Bible, the earth-shattering moment is it's not these people are in and these people are out. Everybody's out. And the world has never been the same since. Because, so go back to our question. Fine. What do you need? What do you need to get freedom? Right? That's the question. Is it if you just perform the rituals the right way? Is that the active agent in these people's lives? No, it's actually not. Is it the, the people? Is it the blood? Is there something about the blood? There's a magic blood here, right? No. God says... And it's, it's hidden, but you have to look at it really hard. God says the only, the, the active agent that actually saves is in verse 13. Look at it. Verse 13, God says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over. That is the only thing that protects. And I never saw this before. This is, it's, it's, it's been blowing my mind all week that it's his sight and it's his action. Think of the good news for this. Why is this good news? Because there is, you are bound to say regularly in your life, do I have enough faith? Do I believe enough? Am I spiritual enough? What if I, I, what if I regret? What if I've messed up? What if I've messed up too much? What if I've done too much? Whenever you feel that way, whenever you see that way, I would, please memorize this one little phrase, when I see the blood. When God sees the blood. Because if you do that, then you will remember primarily, he's not looking at you. Primarily, he's not. God doesn't say, when I see you doing, when I see you living, when I see your actions. No. He's looking at the blood. That's our hope. And 
It's not our understanding. It's not our ability. It's not our record. The key moment is the blood covers that the Lord sees and does, not us. And, and so back up for a second. Take, take, let's do an object uh, experiment here. Put yourself back then, thousands of years ago. People were given the, these, these uh, rituals. Do you think every single one of the Israelites actually put blood on their doorframe? You have to believe statistically, there's thousands and thousands. There had to been some people again, you know what? This, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with this. You know what? I don't need, what, what's going on here? You know, I'm, we're part of the chosen people. God loves us. We're good. And, and I think there's a part of us that says, oh, okay, well, it's because they failed. You know, it's because of their actions and their efforts or lack thereof. But no, what happened in that moment is they were not trusting that he saw the blood. They were trusting, actually, in something else. Some, something else they were, was their God functionally in their life. That was what was going on there. And so before we move on, ask yourself this. Do you see the blood? Do, actually, even better, do you see him seeing the blood? Even better, don't say, well, maybe I don't have enough faith. That's not how God sees it. Don't just see the blood. See God seeing the blood. And that's our hope. That's our salvation. That's what passes over. That's what keeps the judgment at bay. And so if you're asking, okay, what do I really need for freedom? Don't rest in anything else. That's what the text is saying. All right, last point. Freedom comes through substitution only. We know what freedom is not. We know what freedom really is, but it only comes through substitution. Uh, one commentary I read uh, this week is that in this account, everybody had a death, did they not? The Egyptian families had a death of the firstborn, their idol, what they idolized. But the Israelites had a death too. It was the death of the lamb. The lamb functioned as a substitute. But I started asking this question, wait a second, what is it in, in the quality and the nature of the lamb that, what will keep them from idolizing again their firstborn? Let me, let me let, fill you in on a little secret. They did keep idolizing the firstborn. They still had the same problem. They were no different than the Egyptian. Aren't they going to continue to do this? Aren't they going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness? H how does the lamb stop their waywardness in those spaces? How does the lamb fix their rebelliousness? How does it fix our tendency to go for anything and everything other than God? And the answer is this. The lamb here depicts, depicts the substitution. It can't function as a substitution. It's an object lesson. It's, it's, a, it's a, a symbol. But it's not enough. When I was in high school, I, I mean, I, mean, I know you, I'm really cool now, but I, I was desperate to be seen as cool. I was desperate that people to like me. And what was cool in the 90s were these Oakley glasses that kind of went around your, like this. And what was cool was to kind of like have like a nice watch and, and some bling on your arm. And so in the 90s in New York, I would always go downtown and you could find really amazing knockoffs for like five, 10 bucks. And so instead of Oakleys, I bought Oakleys. Um, <laughs> and instead of a Rolex, they had a Rolex. You know, if you look really closely, you know, the little E is really an A. But I would rock the, that, those sunglasses and that watch, and I'd walk around and be like, what's up, you know, like everybody else. And yet in the back of my mind, I, I knew that they were fake. And I knew they were not going to work at a, as a replacement. They couldn't work as a replacement. In fact, those, those uh, Oakleys, they, they, they got scratched the first day, and that Rolex, Rolex, did not even really tell time. He kept on trying to wind it and like hit it and stuff. It didn't work. It wasn't a good enough 
substitute. They couldn't function for the real thing. In the same way, I think, imagine, let me try this. Imagine this. If I killed somebody and I said, oh, 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 and, you know, before the cops and before you all, you know, I say, hey, hold on one second. Let me, get a, let me go get a lamb. I'm going to go kill this little lamb and I'm going to like burn it and sacrifice it. One second, you know, I'm over here. I'm doing my thing. And then I come back. I'm like, substitute. <laughs> We're good, right? We're all good. What are you going to do? You're going to say, that, that's not enough. That doesn't work because it's, it, it's, it doesn't function that way. We know that's not valid payment. So what's going on here? The lamb is a placeholder. If you fast forward thousands of years later, Jesus is walking around, John the Baptist shows up, and just almost kind of like uh, a guttural utterance, a eureka, John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he says something similar. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You say, what's all that about? The moment in Exodus right here is meant to show believers and non-believers alike, everybody needs a substitute, but you can't do it on our own. But the Lord is looking at the blood thousands of years ago, and he's thinking about the blood that would actually work. He's thinking about the true substitute the substitute that all other substitutes point to, the lamb that all other lambs point to, Jesus is that lamb. The reason why Abraham didn't have to kill his firstborn, the reason why Israelites didn't have to kill his firstborn, and the reason why even though we have our own firstborns here and we're as wrong as they are, the costliness of it, that we don't pay for it, is because the true lamb gave himself up instead. You say, what does that have to do with freedom? It's freedom because without Jesus, you're going to be bound to that thing for the rest of your life. You're going to be stuck. Play it out. I love uh, Marie Kondo, right? You know, does this thing give you joy? Same thing. Does, this, does the things in your life give you freedom? Will they give you freedom? Lift it up. Does money, how much money is going to be enough money to give you real freedom? How many friendships are going to be enough friendships to give you real freedom? How many, how many people who love you and think well of you is going to be enough to give you freedom? How many sexual partners? How many successes? See, only Jesus fulfills because when you see him substitute himself for you, when you see him, when you see him say, my life for your life, and put your trust and hope and freedom in him, here's two things happen at once. Simultaneously, only he has enough love to give you what you really need, when you, particularly when you feel unlovely or unloved, and B, he's the only person who's not going to be abandoned or taken away from you. See, the reason why no freedom in this world will be enough is because, guess what? If it's in this world, it can be taken away from you. It can be taken out of this world. If it's someone, they can, they can leave you. If it's something, it can leave you. Only Jesus won't abandon you and can't be taken from you. And that brings a deep security and trust and freedom in him. Everything else is too fragile. So when he gives himself to you, now the only thing left is for us to give ourselves back to him. And the question is, is are we going to do that? And that, by the way, this isn't a one-off thing. This is a regular moment, a statement, a decla- declaration where we regularly say, I forgot, I'm going to do it again. I forgot, I'm going I'm to recommit again. Every day, every week, see God seeing the blood, see God seeing Jesus, and Jesus is seeing you. And when we see him, that's where the change happens.
to end, let me just give us two quick applications from this. I, I, we've, been, we've talked about some of these themes before in the past weeks, but we need application. First application is this. Complain less, contemplate more. Number one, complain less, contemplate more. I tend to complain when I feel like my life's not going the way it's supposed to go. I tend to complain when I don't think what's, God's letting happen what I think should happen in my life. But look at Pharaoh. Look at the Israelites. They were blind to what they really needed. So when God shows up and shows them what will free them, that means then for us, when the sky is falling, by the way, the sky is falling for some of you, when it looks like there's plague after plague that's happening in your life, that's either happened or going to keep happening, those might just be ways that God is showing you that you need him more than anything else. And only he's going to satisfy, and only he's going to be enough. Perhaps he's taken away the very things that are holding you back from really fully giving yourself to him. That's what I've been feeling personally. I think that's what many of you might be feeling right now. This is where John Newton, one who's done many terrible things, he was a former slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace. This is, this is his phrase. He says, everything is necessary God brings, nothing is necessary that God withholds. And I've, I've really struggled with that. But what that means then is this. If there's something that, that you think he's withholding right now that's good, if, every, you know, if he gives you everything that's really necessary, that means that good thing he will give you if you really need it. And if you don't, if you don't get it, then guess what? It means you never really needed it because you needed him more. And that's what this is saying. That means if there's something right now that I think he's keeping from me, either he's going to give it to me or I never needed it. When I complain, what's happening in that moment is I am asking for what I think I need, but when I contemplate, I will get to the place of seeing that he's the only thing that I need. That's what it says. You will never know how satisfying and rich and sustaining and fulfilling his love really is until all the other loves of your life don't work and all you have left is him. That's where that phrase happens, that you don't realize God is all that you need until... God is all that you have. You don't realize Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. And I think every strip down in your life is one more thing, one more way to say, I guess I didn't need that. I guess I didn't need that. I guess I didn't need that. And then I, and then I will see that I need him. To contemplate, by the way, just side point, to contemplate is not to ignore. I'm not saying that these things aren't hard. I'm not saying that there's not hardships in your life right now. I'm just saying that when you process them in the light of the truth of the gospel, the reality of his love becomes more apparent, and you can take a deep breath, and you can move. Because I didn't need that. I thought I needed that. I didn't need it. I needed him. Last thing, realize that you can have joy before the finish. Yes, you need to complain less and contemplate more, but last thing, you can have the joy before the finish. Isn't it amazing? that these people are covered and saved before the Ten Commandments, before the law, before they're asked to do anything, before they go on the journey. That's amazingly comforting to me, that they get the joy, and they get to celebrate, and they get to be covered before anything else happens. And that if, if you really let that sit in your heart, that's going to push you and move you and motivate you to be able to, to move out. What if we realize that you, there are, Nobody's a finished product. What if this church got up every day and we met up other people and we didn't expect them not to be hot messes because they are. And if we realize that they are hot messes, and guess what? You are too. And when you realize that you're a hot mess as well and we're all being hot messes, but because we're sinners saved by grace, we could be a family, we could be a community that isn't pulled apart, that isn't 
that is able to cross racial, cultural, economic lines. That would be powerful and amazing. If you're a Christian, I think I would like for you to know that you can rest in the joy before the finish, that you can, you can give and receive encouragements, and you can let this be our motivation. That gives us hope. Because life will beat you down. Life is beating you down, but you get the joy before the beatdown. If you're not a Christian here, I just would love to, the last thing I'd like to say to you is think, compare, contrast. What might be the thing that, that you, it has been functioning as your God or your idol and what's not working and what really will? And then what you would see is back then, thousands of years ago, these people were covered by the blood of a lamb and they realized that they're not saved by the firstborn, they're not saved by their deeds, they're not saved by their works. And I, guess what? Christians, what we're doing right now is the same thing. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb, and we are not saved by our deeds or our works or our firstborn or anything else. And when you sit in that, you can have the joy before the finish. I'd love to do that. I need that reminder. I need you to help me remind, remind me, and I'm here to help remind you. And if we do that together, no matter what we believe, no matter where we are, there's joy, there's purpose, there's contentment. Come have the joy before the finish. Let's rest and celebrate in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, for this. Help us to see what will really bring freedom. If we do this, we will have freedom. We will be free to, to be able to care without overcaring. We'll be free to be able to, to love without abusing that love. Ironically, if we have you, we see you as our substitute, the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away my sin. We place you first, Father. All the other loves will come in line. We can love our family more. We can love our job more because it doesn't need to be what it can't be. It can't give us what we really thought it could. It never could. Help us to love and serve and sit in the space. Help us to let and see the plagues and the hurts and the, and the issues there are ways just that you're pointing us to you. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.